we all have a cognition bias. But your teammate has a different set of cognition biases. And if you've got a team of, let's say, 10 or 12 people, they're going to cover each other really, really well. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. We are in the peculiar moment Terence McKenna liked to talk about as poised between apes and angels. That bizarre flash in the pan in the fossil record when we go from a native biosphere to some bizarre technium. The Anthropocene is really only the beginning of this discontinuity, and it is therefore an obvious interest to whatever comes next that we leave the most interesting records to explain what on earth was going on at this time. Today's guest is an excellent person to talk about such things with. Armin Ellis is a former mission architect for JPL. He worked on stuff like Mars Rover and International Space Station missions. And he has since moved on to found the Exploration Institute, a strategic consultancy, as well as the Pioneers Circle, which supports people in their heroic endeavors like cross-oceanic swims and crazy high-altitude balloon forays, that kind of thing. And he's a part of the ARC Mission Project, which is very dear to my heart and the heart of this show because they are negotiating to have civilizational archives added to the payload of deep space missions and they are sending these data-rich capsules of humanity out into the cosmos, the cosmic fence pissing par excellence. Well, anyway, I'm excited to get you into this episode, but first I want to thank all of the Patreon supporters that are helping this show stay afloat like the dandelion seed it is into the soft, receptive soil of some new listener's ear. A special thank you to David Kelly and Transhumanity.net for signing up as featured sponsors. Transhumanity.net is a super cool, long-running, very robust, and extensive blog of blogs combining every kind of imaginable opining, theorizing, and uh, creative arting on the subject transhumanism, specifically opening, expanding, exploring, modifying, is a very human project in some sense to move beyond ourselves. In some ways, we are certainly both more and less than whatever was once considered human pretty much anywhere we look. And so the investigation of what motivates our evolutionary decisions when evolution itself has become a technology Something I discuss a lot on this show, and something I'm really glad that transhumanity.net enjoys supporting. More on that later, but uh, for now, just before we begin the episode, I want to let everybody know the video for this entire conversation is up on Patreon, as well as a number of exclusive episodes and other backstage treats. And even if you have run out of friends to talk about this program with, you can get even more involved in the discussion by jumping into the Future Fossils Facebook group. We have a lot of fun in there, sharing news and interesting creative works, having smart conversations. It's a total treat. And I would love to encounter you in that space if you still use the fallen medium of Facebook. Okay, thanks for staying with me. I hope you enjoy this fabulous conversation with Armin Ellis. Armin Ellis, welcome on board Future Fossils. You are one. 
Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to connect with you today. Yeah. So let's see. We met at the Interplanetary Festival in Santa Fe, and uh, I was taking notes during a panel that you were on uh, about the end of the world. Only you guys kind of subverted the panel topic and you made it about the end of the world. Like maybe, maybe it won't be. And then it went even further and it was like, no, we're going to talk about how to keep it from being the end of the world. And you said so many beautiful, how would I put this on a panel with two women? I felt that you were able to keep up with your like forgiving, compassionate, caring human remarks and and that it was very clear that there is that you have a solid sense of you know not only just the sort of technical and systems dimensions of this uh situation that we're in but also kind of the you know what it's going to requ- require of us emotionally to leave a better world for the generations to come than the world that we inherited or you know do our best so i really do believe that uh the future is pretty bright for us. I don't feel that, uh, you know, uh, we give ourselves credit for the kinds of things that we've done and uh, the level of humanity that we do show. Unfortunately, you know, as humanity, I think we are programmed to see negatives in a very stark way. And um, our amygdala over the eons has evolved to uh, be in this kind of particular state where, uh, you know, negativity tends to have a lot more power. And uh, yeah, so just because of that, I feel like uh, we're, we've got a skewed perspective and um, I, I just like to see more empathy in the world right now for one another, for problem solving, rather than allowing our amygdala to take over and for us to uh, be stuck with blaming one another and thinking about violence and, you know, how do we, uh, you know, do things in a destructive way to prevent more destruction. You know, I mean, that's, that's not the way it works, (laughs) you know, you had a, so just to, to put this in the the framing, like I found out we we spoke uh, about a week ago and, and you were telling me about your background as a, uh, a strategic mission director. How would, what was the name of that specific title for JPL? It was. Yeah. At JPL, I was a mission architect. At JPL, I initially started working uh, on the Mars rovers, and then uh, uh, I was extremely interested in understanding a little bit more about uh, Earth sciences. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, Mars exploration sounds like a, an amazing uh, thing, and uh, being involved in it obviously was a no doubt uh, an honor and a privilege. But when you consider how infrequently you get the actual opportunity to launch a payload to Mars <laughs> and how, how much more frequently you get to launch something into low, low Earth orbit just because of the way that the mechanics of it work. I think that uh, Earth Sciences allows you to experiment more and uh, to look at uh, different architectures in a, in a more um, sort of interesting way and iterate more on these um, kind of observations. I'm going to try, this might be a stretch, but I feel like what I witnessed, you know, your warmth and your understanding that you brought into that panel at the Interplanetary Festival was evidence of a skill that you must have learned through tribulation as mission architect. You're focusing all of this energy and this effort, this attention, these resources into this, you know, like a, the desert flower that makes just that, you know, that cactus makes just one flower a year. You know, and it's like you either get this or you don't, you know, so there is something in that conversation about our human condition and just like the daunting complexity and how calm and patient and understanding we have to be with ourselves navigating this kind of complexity that seems like it grew directly out of that particular work. And I'm curious if you could speak to that, you know, well, well, let me uh, let me just say it's um it's very, very kind of you to say this. However, I think it also speaks a lot to you to be to be able to actually notice that uh, these things do come through a lot of uh, difficulty. You know, in many ways, I feel like uh, going through engineering school or getting involved in business and you know um, dealing with day to day life. We tend to think of the world in a kind of a 
if this, then that kind of uh, setup, right, in a very linear way. But when you really start to work on complex projects, I mean, really complex projects, you know, when you've got not only the complexity of uh, the sciences and the measurements, but also the human dynamics, and then you've got the government thrown in there for, you know, your funding and your financing, and then you're sometimes looking at a program that could stretch out to about a decade. You all of a sudden start to get a different kind of perspective on things, and you start to realize that there's no one solution. There's not one answer that would allow you to get to the uh, to the end goal. And so uh, it becomes that much more important to listen to other perspectives. Because let me give you an example, actually, on this one. Imagine a high-performance aircraft that's uh, made by some company. Let's narrow it down to United States, right? So you've got Lockheed and you've got Boeing. You know, two of them are making an aircraft and they're all supposed to uh, function to the same specification. Do they end up looking the same once they're done, do you think? Well, it depends on how many moles they have in each other's design departments, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, let's take it back to the 1940s. I mean, there's a certain amount of convergence there, but probably not, yeah, probably not too, too much. Right, exactly. So some things are dictated by physics, but some things are really a, a function of human imagination and the way that we go about solving them. So uh, you fundamentally end up seeing that uh, there are fingerprints of the individuals working on some of these projects on the end product. And that's actually a fascinating and a beautiful thing to witness, right? So the same kind of thing happens all the time, every day in the solutions that we come up with, whether it's, yeah, space design or aerospace uh, architecture or something of that sort, or solving an art conundrum that, uh, that you might have, or uh, social structures, or uh, contract, or, you know, you name it, any area of human creativity, we're going to bring our personalities into it, and we're going to mold it to our own sort of um, personalities. And that's just fascinating. And, you know, and it starts to sort of uh, make you realize that ego actually doesn't have a whole lot to do with any of this stuff. And in fact, ego slows us down. It makes us stupider. You know, I'm not actually sure that there are too many intelligent people out there. I think there are people who embrace intelligent practices that allows them to have intelligent outcomes. It's not a, you know, intelligence isn't a fundamental quality. Uh, beyond a certain level, right? I mean, as long as our brains function, as long as we've had enough food, you know, we've had enough training, we've, had, we've spent enough time, you know, thinking about problems, and we've allowed ourselves to get to the point of understanding nuances and so on. Uh, beyond that, it just becomes a function of are we willing to embrace with a certain level of discipline those practices that allow us to have intelligent outcomes. It's interesting, you know, you say, you say two things there that, that hold together in, in a, what is to me a kind of a fascinating way. One is that, you know, every, that design carries the signature or it bears the impression of its designer. And that all of us, whether we intend for it or not, are sort of projecting our own framing, our, our, our worldview the sort of implicit cognitive and metaphorical scaffold that we use to orient ourselves and to navigate things, that that is showing up in everything we do and in everything we make. But then on the other side of it, you're also saying that, you know, like I think about uh, Osho. Osho talked about how even though he was, you know, the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, the famously controversial guru He's like, well, yeah, I'm enlightened. I have no ego. I don't know how he exactly. He didn't put it like that. It was, it was kind of a, an asshole-ish way to t- But he's like, but even though I've, I've woken up, I still smell like me. You know, and I think mm-hmm. that that's sort of, you know, when you're saying that the ego gets in the way of intelligent thinking, and I've been, I've been feeling that a lot lately. You know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about paying too much attention to the the boundaries of selfhood and like affirming those boundaries and, and how that doesn't really work for us in a world as intricately folded over itself as um, wildly speciose in its attributable causes. 
as ours is. I don't know. That's what I, what I mean is like that maybe we're at a point now where what has always been obvious is now even more obvious. And the individual intelligence has never really been a match for the collective human intelligence. And yet there is this thing about moving into this space where clearly it makes more sense to start thinking collectively, acting collectively. There is still this uh, ineradicable reality of the individual signature and the the sort of vital importance of each unique perspective in this. And so I'm curious how you rec- how you sort of synthesize or integrate or reconcile those two pieces of it, especially working on a, a super wacky complex thing like the Mars rover mission. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, let me throw another crazy one in there. Uh, actually, there is a time and a place for uh, big egos. <laughs> right. Isn't that? Uh, kind of nuts because uh, you know uh, there are times when you're trying to be creative and there's times when you're trying to execute and uh, sometimes you just need someone who's going to step up and you know bring their ego into it and go down and sort of get something done right and uh, it sounds really really odd to say this but um, there's a reason why certain individuals egotistical maniacs you know, if you will, that quintessential kind of uh, character that comes to mind gets things done, right? Uh, there is a place for this personality as well in the world. It, they might not necessarily be easy to get along with, but certainly in this big ecosphere of human activity, yeah, I mean, there are uh, plenty of egotistical people who uh, have, I would say, allowed us to get a lot done. Well, there's the classic Steve Jobs example. Sure. You know, that there's like a, that there may be something about like CEO psychology that you need somebody that's just capable of making the executive order and doesn't have to sit around talking about it until, you know, we're all up to our necks in the boiling situation. Absolutely. You know, here's where it comes down to sort of, you know, where the rubber meets the road. We all like to have these ideas about, you know, simplicity and keeping things as easy to explain as possible. But the fact of the matter is that the world is not that simple. The world is not linear. As Einstein says, I mean, this is one of my favorite quotes, the world should be described in as simple a way as possible, but no simpler, <laughs> right? There comes a threshold of simplicity. And if we all just say, hey, let's all get together and let's do certain things in a particular way, that's going to work really, really well for a particular set of circumstances. But there are other circumstances where that's just not going to cut it. And um, what I think we need to do is to have as many tools as we can so that we can apply the right one at the right time. And uh, that's probably that's probably the best way to go about it, not be too set on doing things in a particular way. So. <laughs> so what does this look like in practice in your life? I mean, I know you've moved on from JPL now and you are a, a, a strategist, right? That's yeah. uh, you've got the exploration Institute and you're working on the ground with organizations to facilitate this kind of organizational intelligence. So, yeah. you know, how does this look in the day to day? Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe more, I don't know. I think that there's probably a way that everyone can relate to this through the, the Mars Rover piece that there's some take home there, but anywhere, you know, what is, how do you see this? How do you personally apply this kind of literacy that there's simple, but no simpler, you know, that there yeah. is a sort of minimum viable product when it comes to a team, there might be a, uh, like a, a simple, but no simpler recipe for the kind yeah. of people that you need on, in a room together to make something work. And how does that look in the work that you do? Okay. So that's actually a really interesting setup because I feel that um, we've got two types of clients at Exploration Institute. Uh, the first type is the kind of client that's actually experiencing some difficulty in a project. And they think, they're thinking that maybe they're not performing the way that they need to, or their end product isn't coming together the way that, that it kind of should. So that's the first type. And then there's a second type. Typically, people we've worked with before are people who actually understand that performance is like entropy in that 
either you uh, minimize entropy, but you can't go below it. You know, you can't have, you know, you can't reduce entropy beyond a certain level, or you're just becoming dysfunctional, and uh, that's not a good way to run a uh, run a project. And therefore, they reach out and say, "Can we, you know, work on this particular project before we run into problems?" So it's a really interesting sort of dynamic. These two different groups. Let's kind of look at the broader picture of strategy. We're all limited by having two eyes that point that way and uh, being able to see the world, you know, at specific wavelengths. And this kind of extends through all sorts of things. I mean, our personalities allows us to see things and interpret things in a specific set of ways, in ways that we're familiar and comfortable with. We all have a cognition bias. But your teammate has a different set of cognition biases. And if you've got a team of, let's say, 10 or 12 people, they're going to cover each other really, really well. So what we do is that, um, first and foremost, we try to provide that kind of perspective in a way that no individual would be able to fully appreciate. When it comes to problem solving, I think this is key. What you might consider as being the uh, biggest challenge to solve, someone else might already have solved that one, but they might see another problem. And uh, being able to bring all of these different perspectives together so that you can come up with a really comprehensive solution and do it painlessly, well, that's just worth a lot, I think. So it's really about perspective. Yeah. This is the puzzle that keeps me awake at night, even though I don't have you know, like a situation to apply it to, like a specific client situation. But I do think about, given... Uh our landscape today, you know, given the complexities of moving out of the broadcast and everyone reading the same paper in the morning and the coherence, even if it was horrible coherence of the Gutenberg galaxy, you know, the Marshall McLuhan thing, you know, everyone is being an informed citizen, you know, and so you agree on the facts, but the kind of complexity that you're speaking to is the kind of complexity we're wading in now with the ability to narrow cast and target people and speak to them in a specific way and speak to them specifically and not everyone else around them. The way that we've seen this enter the world is as a weapon that's used to, you know, to tear communities apart. And it's, it's even the, the sort of tilt of this technology seems to be toward a fragmentation of perspectives rather than a coordination of perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about uh, one of my favorite works of science fiction, Diaspora by Greg Egan. He imagines this future in which human beings are so biologically diverse that we have, we're running on different nerve, which it's already kind of the case, right? All sci-fi is just now only more. So we've got humans that are so neurologically different from one another that there have to be like intermediate hybrid humans in the Congress translating between the different neurotypes. And so I th that sounds kind of like the job that you have to do in groups like this, where you might, you're not even necessarily seeing the same problem. If you are, you're certainly seeing different parts of it. So how do you craft communications that reach everybody? Or do you just have to pull everybody off into the side room one at a time? Well, so this, there are a number of processes, there are a number of steps that you have to really uh, apply if you want to do this. Uh, honestly, I don't think people in a group setting should come to their uh, sort of decisions very quickly. I don't think they should do that. I don't think it's good for creativity. So one of the things that I advocate at the early stages is don't form an opinion until you've really understood someone else's perspective. If you can kind of um, complete someone else's sentence, at that point, you probably know where they're coming from. And if you can uh, hold your own ideas, understand theirs and someone else's and so on, so you've got a big uh, perspective, then it's fine to go ahead and start um, forming opinions. But you know, when opinions aren't backed up by empathy, you're necessarily going to run into problems because then the ego gets involved, right? So how do you, you gonna... how do you cultivate empathy in your 
clients? How do you cultivate this kind of patience in organizations where it, you know, it, it's clear to everyone that so much is on the line here and it feels so urgent? Well, the first thing you do is that you you explain to them, <laughs> you know, uh, because uh, most people are actually pretty interested in uh, getting good results. Uh, there aren't that many people who go into it, with, you know, immediately with that mindset of, no, I want to protect my territory and so on. So before we go in, we talk to everyone, we sort of let them know what's going on. And if there are individuals who have territories or opinions about something that, you know, they're already kind of... Uh, pretty much uh, sure to want to take forward, we have a conversation with them. Very often you'll find that they don't know that they have such a strong opinion about something. Seriously, it sounds very strange, but a lot of people just don't know how strongly connected they are to a particular outcome. And so going through a set of questions and really relaxing people to say, you know, no, this is not, you know, no one's going to be out there threatening you. This is really a group uh, exercise. And this is something that uh, is going to be there for the benefit of the organization. Once you really frame it in that way and remove any of these threats, most people are very, very open, actually. Yeah, it's quite surprising. So we've done the thing in this show that I, I always end up doing, and it's just a nightmare, but we're doing this completely out of order, right? Because we've, we've started in the abstract and strategic, when really, I'm, I'm super curious to hear about how you got into this work. I mean, when we spoke last week, you know, you mentioned that you grew up loving space and that it was it was sort of a part of your heritage and your upbringing. And, and I'd love to, I'd love to hear about how you came into this and, and you know, where, where this passion grew in the first place. Well, I can't remember a day in my life when uh, space wasn't this burning passion, something that really mattered to me. I remember I was uh, six, seven years old and I was playing Jacques Cousteau <laughs> and I was playing Neil Armstrong and I was playing, you know, Yuri Gagarin. And um, so exploration and space have always been exciting and uh, things that provided a future worth living, you know, something that connected people at a deep level. So, yeah, I've always had an emotional kind of um, connection, you know, to adventures. So, you know, getting into the space uh, world was a pretty obvious thing. I remember I was eight years old and I decided that I wanted to work at JPL. <laughs> so so that's that so just specific. Happened. Very specific. It wasn't like I want to be an astronaut or I want to work for NASA. It was I want to work at NASA JPL in Pasadena, California, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you at the time? You were yeah, I was uh, just growing up in the UK and um, I used to love going to the library and looking through these books. And uh, I remember uh, there was a picture of the Viking lander with its landing pad on Martian dust. And uh, there was a like there was the JPL logo right next to it. And that 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 did it for me, really. So, yeah, it's it's kind of thank you for <laughs> making me think about this. Yeah. It's really uh, something that that's always been there with me. It's really, really exciting. And so. Moving from there, I started a small uh, company in the UK, and then I came to the US to uh, do my PhD, and uh, both related to space. And then um, I started working at JPL after that. So what you, and I know that it says this on the website, you started a space venture at 22. Yeah. So what were you, what could you have been doing at the age of 22 as a space entrepreneur? Help us wrap our heads around this. Okay, so it's actually a really interesting story. There was a guy uh, who was um, he was from the computer world. His name uh, was Jim Benson. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. He started a company called SpaceDev. And um, when I was uh, doing my bachelor's degree, I had the opportunity to do an internship at a company called Space Innovations Limited in the UK. And this gentleman, Jim Benson, purchased Space Innovations Limited. And I got the opportunity to actually meet with him one on one. And he was amazing. He was this like American entrepreneur and he had 
this go get him attitude. And it was so wonderful and so exciting. And I thought, wow, this guy's kind of like a role model here. He really did have a big impact on me. And and I thought that uh, I actually had something to contribute to um, to entrepreneurship in the space program at the time. So really, that did it. And from that point, I heard someone else say to me, uh, actually a mentor who said, you know, to be successful in business, you've got to be in business. So that's like the prerequisite. It's kind of profound, actually. You know, and you, it sounds trivial until you really reflect on it. So this combination of this statement and Jim Benson's character and fire and all the exciting things that he wanted to do, that sealed the deal, really. But what was interesting is that what I'm doing now kind of came from that point, because at 22, no one wanted to listen to this cocky kid tell him how you should do things differently. And so I had to come up with a process. I had to pay a lot of attention to how individuals actually make decisions. And uh, that set the wheels in motion and became the foundation of what is now idea to implementation method or I2I method. And throughout my career, really, I've been uh, using it and applying it and improving it step by step as I see things uh, in organizations or in people or in projects. It kind of works. Is there a is there an implementation to idea back channel? Because I, it, it sounds sort of uh, like a reiterative scientific kind of a thing. I don't know. Okay, I mean, I noticed it's trademarked, so I'm afraid to ask too many details specifically about it. But please tell me what you're comfortable sharing to a non-client about the I to I method. Well, so, I mean, it really is about understanding that there are certain things that will empower you to make good decisions. And there are certain things you can do that's just going to throw you off, right? So we talked a little bit earlier about understanding perspectives before you make decisions. So what happens if you had a decision and then you understood perspectives, right? If you had it the other way around, that's not going to work too well. And actually, that's one of the things that you can kind of really start to see in organizations that aren't doing too well. There are a number of steps, 15 steps specifically, that uh, that I've identified as uh, important. And I've also been able to identify the order that they need to go in in order for it to actually make sense and actually get you from, uh, you know, that idea to uh, specifics of how you should go about implementing it. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a number of steps that are good hygiene, you know, (laughs) that, that you need to go through. Is step one is have the idea, right? Well, you know, it's actually more important to have clarity about what outcome you want to have. I think sometimes ideas are overrated mm-hmm. if you don't have the right context. You know, you see people who've got brilliant ideas all the time, but they don't apply it to any specific situation. And even if they did want to apply it to a particular situation, they don't have the interest in that step-by-step approach of seeing it come to fruition you know so an idea is no good unless you really start to implement it you know then it's um, it's the difference between i guess uh physics and engineering and uh i'm not knocking physics in any way at all <laughs> I love physics believe me this is uh this is you know this is just uh this appreciation of how you know how these two disciplines work differently but physics is much more about understanding and engineering would be nowhere without that understanding. But then physics wouldn't have this amazing ability to impact the world if it wasn't for engineering. So the two go hand in hand in a very important way. It reminds me kind of of the, the documentary about the Large Hadron Super Collider. And they talking about the two groups of physicists that work on that project. One is the theoretical and one's the engineering physicists. And the weird sort of across the aisle, cagey relationship that they have with each <laughs> other, which sort of speaks back to this being a single social organism made out of organs that call themselves people, but function as the holders of a particular way of seeing and therefore doing. I'm just so tempted to like vague out with you here, but you're such a wealth of stories. And I'm curious you've got this like go West young man kind of tale. It's obvious from, I want to work 
in Pasadena at JPL to, to I'm going to start the Exploration Institute, that the notion of a frontier is very important to you. And so I'm curious how you see that, how you understand that, how the frontier continues to be a, a force or presence in your own life and your contribution to that social molecule. Well, yeah, I mean, the frontier is really important to me. You're, you're absolutely right. Well, let me ask. I mean, you're the same way, right? I imagine most of your listeners would be the same way. You know, people who really appreciate that growth really comes at the edges. And in order for us to have a more rich and more uh, exciting and, you know, a life of more possibilities, then we've got to take that step and go beyond our comfort zones, right? Yeah. You know, I think about the fear versus curiosity tension in the brain, you know, and like which which behavior gets rewarded with dope. You know, like if your primary drive is security, and I guess, you know, this kind of is, uh, again, about people favoring the amygdala, favoring mm -hmm. this, you know, I'm going to hang out in my burrow and this is where I'm safe versus when you finally feel safe enough, you come out into the world and you look around and you're, for me, I think the frontier is kind of like a, it's backwards in a certain way because i feel like for me i i find in terms of a clear concrete goal if my goal is my own well-being my health and my ability to contribute in a meaningful way which means not being a depressed you know piece of crap then i need to focus on the horizon like that there's just a thing about the cubicle and and limiting the focal length of our eyes and how that starts to communicate to the body that we're not doing anything important and we just need to sort of wind it down. And I think, you know, so much of depression is probably due to the fact that we're not standing on top of a hill somewhere wondering what's over there. I challenge anyone. I mean, I know that, that it's very difficult to climb a mountain if you're depressed, but walk up a, you know, walk up a short hill and try and be depressed on top of as depressed as you were on top of the hill as you were on the bottom of the hill you know and so for yeah. me i feel like the the frontier is a psychological necessity for the, a certain kind of person that tends to overemphasize the exhalation and the slump and the introspective like the literal like navel gazing sort of introspective philosophical depressive kind of attitude you know, that the more we become looped in on ourselves as a society, you know, the more that we're focusing only on this, the tiny thin layer of like social stuff going on on Twitter and, and, you know, politics and celebrity and all this stuff, the more we're just sort of decaying into decadence and, you know, we're just atrophying the best things about being human really that the best things about being human in a way are are actually the things that we find when we step out of that circle you know i completely agree with you i completely agree with you i mean look study after study has shown that uh, whatever you focus on has a massive impact on the feelings that you have right so are we thinking creatures or are we feeling creatures we're we're a combination of both and uh, what we focus on has this massive, massive impact on how we feel. And if we focus on significance, you know, framing everything like it's about me or, um, you know, uh, about this singular idea of what I'm going to get out of it. Right. That's not going to make you happy. And then the second thing is uh, certainty. If you're singularly focused on certainty, it can't make you happy. Because the world is not a certain place. The only things that you can do in this world are focus on certain things and follow through with certain actions and understand that the world is fundamentally an area that you can potentially influence or not have any influence whatsoever on. So why bother, first of all, worrying about the things you cannot possibly influence no matter what you do? And the things that you can influence yeah, go for it. Have a positive influence in that area. But 
be aware that you can't control it. You, you know, that being able to influence it is a, is a fundamentally different premise than being able to control it. So yeah, if we just have that understanding of what things are going to make us happy, what level of focus in what particular area is going to make us happy, and understand that significance and certainty are kind of going to lead us to some pretty uh, uh, horrible feelings, then uh, that kind of opens up a whole load of other options to us. What if we decided that uh, our lives were, they were a function of a story. Everything is a story, by the way, right? But what if it was a story that was really empowering? What if I was put on this planet to serve people in a particular area? And it didn't even matter if, um, if I couldn't influence people in a completely other area, right? Because that's not my mission. That's not my goal. It's, it's important to focus on one area that, uh, that really excites you, that makes you happy, something that you feel that it's a privilege and an honor to make that contribution in that area and do a great job of it. And the things that you can't handle the things that you don't want to handle, the things that stress you out, well, don't, don't get involved with it. <laughs> Why bother torturing yourself in this uh, finite amount of time on this planet? So, I mean, do you, that sort of begs the question about ikigai, that notion of, you know, what you want to do, what you are good, like what you enjoy doing, what you're good at, what you can get paid for and what the world needs. And that ikigai is that the Japanese word for that sweet spot in between all four. Right. And then the the classic rebuttal to that is, okay, but what about, you know, sanitation workers, right? Like where, I guess this is the, this is this sort of an epistemological question, right? Which is, do you truly believe that if everyone focused on what they truly care about, that all of the work would get done? Well, I can honestly tell you this, that if, Waste management, after this interview, contacted me and said, hey, can you help us uh, figure something out? I would jump at the opportunity. Because I recognize how important that job is, right? Some people are driven by these things and some people, some people are not. Now, if they said, do something that I have absolutely no skills in, then obviously no. But can we cleverly figure out some solution to some of the problems that they've got right now? I think we can. I really do think we can. Can we create some, you know, the obvious uh, answer would be uh, some robotic way to do the things that no one else wants to take care of. I think that'd be a, ter a terrific idea. I would love to be involved in a project of that nature. Um, the ocean or... Roomba. <laughs> I just, I yeah, can't, maybe... I can't mention this enough. Somebody like everybody, please ocean Roombas, <laughs> but sorry to interrupt. Well, no, it's it it's true. I mean, there's a lot of things out there that uh, a lot of opportunities for people to jump on and uh, really help humanity. And why not? So, okay, to be a mission architect. I mean, that's such a you know, that's like a marketing guru or whatever. You know, the, we're starting to combine these things because we, we can't find a better way to describe it. There's this notion that architecture is frozen music. And that a mission architect is doing exactly what you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is organizing the harmonious flows and balances in a, to call on kind of like an, you know, an Eastern way, you know, to bring everything into proportion and alignment musically almost, you know, in, in the, the social dynamic of the group working on, you know, the Mars Rover or the International Space Station you know, yep. back and forth that an architect, I feel perhaps even more than a musician, at least historically speaking that, and that architects have a different time horizon. And so I'm curious about, you know, when you're talking about at the beginning of the call, having a 10 year vision and a budget and a roadmap for something in a world where most people don't know what's, you know, they're not getting their schedule till next week, you know, and then like, as far as today is concerned, 
oh my god the potus just tweeted some horrible thing and we're all in that sort of emergency response operator amygdala like tight loop you know that five second trauma circuit so i'm curious about your your perspectives on the longer now the wider now and how taking that perspective works and maybe sometimes doesn't work in a world as sort of urgent and rapid and tumultuous as ours. Well, I mean, one of the biggest things is to understand, again, you know, going back to this idea of what you can influence and what you really can't influence at all, right? And look, working on a space project can mean that you're going to get a project canceled at any time. You will not have any control over some guy in Congress or some lady in Congress who decides that your project isn't worth doing after years of uh, you putting your passion and energy and, you know, the life into it. So it is important to be patient and it's important to be forgiving. But at the same time, you know, you've, you've got to like step up and be energetic and get things done. There's a lot of complexity in, in this. But this complexity shouldn't be made more complex than it needs to be. That excessive complexity just reduces clarity and it reduces the effectiveness of the leader or, uh, or the people following the program. Same thing applies to your life. You know, so we actually also work with some individuals who've got these amazing and ambitious projects that they're trying to uh, execute right now. Whether you've, you're working with, you know, one of these multi-billion dollar companies that we work with or whether, you know, an army of one, it's really important to always uh, sort of be willing to pull back and look at the bigger perspective and say, am I doing the right thing? Is this action still in line with my end goal? Is that clarity still in place? And um, trying to be smart about it. You've got to also understand the, the interplay between making an order and actually, you know, seeing things happen in reality. There's, there's a lot of complexity that goes into executing a step. So there's no simple solution in any of this stuff, but it's that willingness to iterate and be disciplined about coming up with the best answer all the time to the best of your ability. And given the limited knowledge that you have or the opinions that you think are your knowledge, but, you know, uh, and, and going to your epistemology and all the rest of it. So in your life, given your work and given, given your disposition to look beyond, what horizon do you think that you're working toward? I mean, obviously you've got specific projects with all kinds of different deadlines and stuff, but really like at the heart of it, where do you find yourself thinking into in terms of like the world that you're trying to, you know, the, the outcomes that you're trying to influence? Is it a, is it a five-year thing, a 10-year thing, a 50-year thing? Yeah. I mean, I've got all of those, but yeah. also I think a lot about Star Trek. Uh-huh. I always, think that <laughs> it's true. I, I want to see Star Trek happen. And, uh, you know, whether it, that kind of uh, world happens within my lifetime, hopefully, uh, with life extension. Or, uh, but not too um, much. Let's not wait too, too long. Yes, exactly. Or if I can somehow uh, be a participant in getting things moving in that direction. I mean, that's, that's exciting to me. Yeah. Can we talk about the ARC mission? You're the advisor for this extremely cool project that I, I didn't originally know you were connected to. Uh, it, it came up in our conversation and I was like, oh my God, this is like, I was geeking out about this so hard. So could you please introduce people to this project and, and uh, its significance to you and how you got involved? Yeah, so uh, actually my official title uh, is a Chief Mission Architect. So. <laughs> 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 so um, there's there's more of this stuff going on there. And uh, yeah, so I'm working with a fantastic group of people. The leader of the organization is Nova Spybag. And um, what we're trying to do is to see about preserving human knowledge. Preserving it because it serves two major functions. One is that you know, that idea that uh, if something should happen to humanity, the data is archived and, um, you know, somehow it could be potentially recovered. 
at some point in the future, right? Okay, so there's one. But in the, there's the other side of it, which I think is uh, really important for our time. And it's the idea that we can celebrate knowledge, you know, whether it's civilization or our libraries. And uh, for us to be able to extend that library of knowledge into deep space, to me, is actually a beautiful thing. So a little bit of background for your listeners. The Falcon Heavy that was launched um, earlier this year had this Tesla Roadster uh, that was, you know, taken to deep space. Now, on that Tesla, there was a little data archive of the trilogy series. And um, it's kind about of the Asimov's Foundation trilogy, right? That, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So it's kind of fitting that uh, the whole project should have it send off into, into deep space in, in this kind of way. And what we're trying to do is to create these archives that last for billions of years. Uh, the next step is uh, we've just announced this. We're sending an archive to the moon. And what we'd like to do is to actually launch these data archives with every deep space mission that, that we can get onto. Again, the idea is to really look at knowledge as something that's beautiful and expanding and worth preserving. Uh, and then eventually give uh, individuals the opportunity to put their own information on the archives so that uh, you know your words could be archived for billions of years as well. So what is the actual thing? Is it like a quartz crystal with laser inscribed or is it frozen DNA or what's going on with the actual medium that is going to last for yeah. billions of years? Well, so you, you're right, of course, the DNA would be ideal because uh, the amount of information you can hold is just unbelievable. The problem with, the, with DNA is that it's, uh, we haven't figured out a way to keep it stable over a long time frame. Maybe someday some technology will come along that will allow that kind of uh, data storage to last for the kind of time frame that we're um, thinking about. But uh, for now, we're looking at nickel plates. Nickel because it's extremely stable. We've got a process that allows us at a very reasonable cost to store data, large volumes of data on nickel plates. It's very simple, passive payload. You don't need to supply electricity or do anything fancy to it. It will just last for billions and billions of years. To be read by whom? Like, I mean, this is the, the question that you got into with the, the Voyager, right? Like, how do we, how is this human or non-human readable? So like, what kind of considerations is uh, the Arc Mission Project taking with that kind of a, it's not just about storing, it's about retrieving. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, great observation there, because what kind of a primer can you put on board that will allow it to be, you know, universally understood? It's, that's actually a hard problem. But, Looking at things um, from a different perspective, almost certainly if we received a set of data that we knew was supposed to convey information, I don't think today we would be applying Rosetta Stone type of uh, you know, data exchange to it. I think we would just throw um, an artificial intelligence algorithm to try to figure it out. And I think that actually is more likely to be a robust solution than uh, creating some kind of a primer. Now, having said that, it is important to make it stand out as something special and something that is uh, worthy of being read and uh, something that clearly indicates there's more to it than a piece of metal, right? But I think artificial intelligence is going to be a big part of uh, that solution. You know, maybe if we put just at the top of it, if we just put, you know, top 10 facts about Earth you won't believe, you know? <laughs> Like, yes. Is Earth doing the wrong thing? But how did you get involved in this project? Did they just see JPL Mission Architect and they said, oh, we need one of those? And they, they reached out to you or did you see them or how did it? Actually, it was a mutual friend who uh, had a, uh, a dinner party and Nova was there. I was there and a number of other very interesting people were there. And uh, he just said, look, I want all you uh, individuals who are working on really, really interesting projects to come together. And I want to just introduce you guys. So, um, yeah, he's actually a really, really interesting uh, person as well. So we just got talking. And uh, sometime later, Nova asked if, uh, if I'd be interested in 
being an advisor on the project. And of course, how could I say no? Um, yeah. That's rad. So I'd like to wrap this up with a two-parter question for you because we've danced around this stuff. We've come close to a direct address, but in the last few minutes here, I'm curious what you see as the greatest challenges facing us as a species right now, because there's plenty to pick from, right? Yeah. But like really, if underlying them, maybe these are all symptoms of something or, you know, maybe there's something that you fix that one thing and there's a cascade, you know, that it would solve. What is that thing for you? And then also, you did say Star Trek. Specifically, there's a very clear thing that we're working toward. But if you could imagine sort of the best possible future, I'd like to hear you talk about a future in which this massive species level problem has been addressed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think that the biggest threat to humanity right now is actually our perspectives and how we approach life. So the kind of thinking that's gotten us to this point is not going to be sufficient to get us beyond this point. At some point, sooner rather than later, we need to have, sorry to sound woo-woo here, but we do need to have a shift in our uh, consciousness as humanity. I think we've got to be a lot more empathetic. I really do. And if we don't have that level of empathy, if we can't step up and uh, be a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more forgiving of other people and, our, and of ourselves, I think we're going to find ourselves in a lot of trouble. And I think we can do that. Humanity is so young. And liken it to, uh, to children, the behavior up until the age of you know, seven or eight is going to be fundamentally different for a successful person uh, to someone who's, let's say, in their mid-20s and beyond. Right. So we've got to think different. And to link that to Star Trek. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine imagine the Enterprise. Right. Imagine that uh, Captain Picard is sitting on the bridge of the Enterprise and uh, he's got this incredible ability to go anywhere he likes. Right. And to explore and gain a deeper understanding of the way that the universe works. Right. But if he doesn't have the ability to regulate his emotions and he's always angry and upset and irritated by people, <laughs> well, that, that'd be a really awful version of Star Trek. You, right? mean, you mean the original Star Trek with Captain Kirk? <laughs> it's sort of a, I think Picard is closer to the actual sort of future human we would hope for. Well, even Kirk, I mean, he was, you know, he, he wouldn't get angry over nothing, you know? Yeah. But, um, he was a little bit more abundant. He was a little bit more sort of aware that he wasn't going to starve to death. And he wasn't coming from that point of view. A lot of these things are things that we as humanity have to sort of start to, you know, accept a little bit and, and um, work towards, right? I mean, there are still many, many individuals who don't have access to food and uh, clean water and sanitation the way that we really would love to see them have access to these things or medicines or education or you name it, right? Sooner or later, these problems are going to be solved. And at that point, I'd love to see us take a more mature sort of view on life, a more advanced and more abundant kind of version of how every individual could be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's about as resonant and timely and uh, personally relevant future advice as, as I could hope for right now, Armin. Thank you. Yeah. Emotional regulation. Let's have one of those. Yes. <laughs> Where can people catch up with your work, you know, find you, learn more about what you're doing? Well, there's a few things, actually. Definitely Twitter, uh, Armin Ellis. Uh, that's my handle. And um, check out the website as well, exploration.institute. Go there and uh, sign up for our newsletters. Uh, that's a pretty cool thing. And also, we're just about to launch uh, a program called uh, Pioneer Circle. One of the things that we do at Exploration Institute is that 
uh, yes, we work on strategies for a lot of big companies and people with uh, fantastic, uh, ambitious projects. But we also on the side try to help with people who are actually doing exploration, like uh, physical exploration. And I'd like to be able to contribute to more of these projects. So keep an eye out for Pioneer Circle. So pioneercircle.com, there'll be a, a website launched there pretty soon. Awesome. Anything else you'd like to leave in the archive for whatever digs this up in a billion years? I think we've covered a lot of ground. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. And I, uh, yeah, best wishes to, uh, to your listeners as well. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.